Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 208. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. A fantastic bumper show today. Tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have another little interview with Tobias Bakel. As you know, Toby put up there on the kickstart his Ocean Apocalypse. And time's been running on. I just want to get Toby back just to see how, you know, what happened. We had him on a few weeks ago when he put that up and he says it was like opening up a rejection letter. That's what it felt like. So we'll get Toby back on. Then we have Film Talk with Dennis Lane. Main fiction comes from Nolan Joe Haldeman with Never Blood Enough. Then we've got a little a little chat from myself. Yes, I'm just going to ask a few thoughts and a few... Just a, a tiny little meta. Getting ready for the big meta show, I guess, which is between Christmas and New Year. I've got some ideas and some thoughts. And I'm just going to kind of put them together, let you know what I think. Then we have our Diane Severson with her Poetry Planet. There you go. Not too bad a show. I hope you agree. Couple of little things before we kind of kick off into the show... The Enhanced Podcasts are back, yes. Ellen Spurtus kindly stepped up to the mark. Ellen, thank you so much for that. Ellen is now busy coding away and doing up all the Enhanced Podcasts, so they are now coming back online. So they might be a little bit behind the times, if you know what I mean, with this show, because this show keeps rolling on, and Ellen's got to catch up there. But, you know, thank you so much, Ellen, for doing that as well. So that's lovely. So, yes... We've got the enhanced feed back up and running. And, you know, before I even forget this, because I always forget this every time, don't forget Twitter, Facebook and Google Plus. I am on there as well, so you can pop in ideas over there. That would be fantastic. (laughs) 
So let's kick off with the main part of the show. As you remember, I had Toby on a while ago, or a few weeks ago actually, wasn't that long ago, about his, you know, Apocalypse Ocean and how he was funding it as a Kickstarter project. And what I'm interested in is, you know, the kind of logistics of it, the mechanics of it, you know, and, you know, it's a scary thing just putting yourself up there. So, I, you know, time's getting close there now. So, Tobias Bekel, it's been a little strange couple of weeks since we last spoke, but I think you might have some good news, sir. Uh, fantastic news. The uh, Kickstarter project for the Apocalypse Ocean is fully funded. We hit 105% this morning, and last night was quite a roller coaster ride. We had all sorts of last minute pe- uh, people coming in and backing the project to get it uh, fully funded before, 24 hours before the uh, project was going to end. So the Apocalypse Ocean is go. Uh, we'll definitely be writing this novel starting in January, and finishing that up in June and handing out, you know, physical copies to all the people who have basically pre-ordered by using this Kickstarter project. So it's pretty amazing. We've kind of uh, gone straight to the the people who love this series and they've uh, come back and basically kind of put in a vote for more. Hey, that's honestly odd because I've been watching it, honestly, ever since I kind of knew you were kind of up and running and I, we did the little talk before. I thought, I'm, yeah, keep, yeah. I'm keeping my favourites. I think a lot of people were, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And then it, it's funny because I was watching it every day, do you know what I mean? Because I just have to type in now on my Google bar, search bar. And yeah. it, you know, if you put in the letter T O, your kind of, you know, your page <laughs> comes up straight away. And it's weird because about, say, a week after we interviewed you, I was thinking, oh, it's not looking good. It's going to, you know, it seemed like, uh, not not stall, but it just seemed to kind of hover around between the five and the six for a, for a long time. And I'm thinking, oh, Toby, it's not going to go. It's not going to go. But then, you know, like say, momentum's carried it. And then towards the end, it's been, it's been honestly great just to watch it. You know, like it's, it's. It's been quite a ride. Uh, you know, and I've looked at a lot of other Kickstarter projects and, and sometimes, you know, it's it's amazing to watch. They each one has a different kind of personality, I think. <laughs> and uh for ours, uh, I, I, I launched it really late on a on a Wednesday. So we launched it at like three o'clock. Yeah. And I was a, a rookie move by by on my part because the the way PR works, you know, the first day something launches, everyone wants to talk about it. So basically, I only gave people about four hours to talk about it and spread the word. And on the first day, you know, we we got two or three thousand dollars worth of pre-orders and our backing, you know, backs and uh, and then you know it it the next day it dies off. And after that, then you hit your sort of slow period until, you know, you get to the end of the end of the month or the end of the period that you've you set up the Kickstarter project. So I kind of kicked myself because if I'd started at seven or eight a.m., you know, I would have had six or seven more hours of excitement on the first day. And we probably could have had a a, a bigger, you know, start off the off the starting line. But, you know, uh, it moved on and and it was slow in the middle there for a bit, you know. Like you said, the getting from like four thousand to six thousand took the better part of you know two weeks, and uh, <laughs> that was interesting to watch, you know, because on this side you're kind of like, well, huh. Um, but like I said, you know, you gotta, you know, if you want to do interesting things, you gotta put yourself out there and not be afraid of failure. So even if it hadn't have worked out, you know, we would have learned something and it would have been an interesting project. So I'm. Very happy with it. Of course, happy, even just absolutely bug ecstatic since it actually went through. 
and early too, so I'm not you know sitting here at the very edge of the finish line biting my nails. I saw one Kickstarter project recently that raised uh, almost half of all of its money in the last 24 hours. Wow. It must be, I mean, yeah. honestly, you must be, that site now, and you must be so, like, intertwined. Do you know what I mean? Like, say, just going over and watching everybody and watching everybody in this kind of big meltdown make it all, you know, get through oh, this, yeah. well, this my, last few my, hours. My poor, wife, my poor wife didn't get a lot of attention from me, like, the last <laughs> five hours last night, because the moment I saw that we'd passed... Uh, that we're getting close to nine thousand, you know, nine thousand ninety percent. I just, I was just sitting there on my phone, hitting refresh, just refresh, 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 <laughs> uh, watching, you know, like watching for any movement because you got that sense when you when you when you were ten percent of you know, the the way to the end, you're just so close to the end, you're just like, oh, I can't believe this. Is this going to happen tonight? And then it did. <laughs> it's it's you know it's almost like selling something on eBay but with steroids. Do you know what I mean? It's just yes. like you, you know yes. you're, you're getting up that final. You know, come on, I want someone else to put a bid in, put a bid in. What I tell you, what is nice, mind you, though, Toby, is like you, I think. Have you still got when we're, we're talking there now? Have you still got something like twenty four hours to go? I have twenty four hours to go. It finishes at three p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, so oh. I've got twenty four hours to go, and we're at one hundred five percent. So the cool thing is. I do have the bonuses for if we raise, uh, you know, 125%, which is that Pablo Defendini is going to do this gorgeous piece of cartography, a map of the Zeno wealth. Uh, and so, like, now I'm kind of eyeing that and going, like, it would be cool to have a map. <laughs> <laughs> so just, uh, you know, talking, yeah. about the, talking about the Kickstarter then, what else have you think you've learned from it because i listened to a great interview with or it was actually mer lafferty talking about her experiences and you know yes getting past that line is you know like fantastic but then you know there is a bit of hard work i'm not just talking about the right the thing but you know there's you've right. got to take into a lot of accounts you know you've you've got now people who expect a product from you you know yep. is there anything no, else you've learned tremendous responsibility comes now we have to write the product you know um that sounds really non-artistic but <laughs> from the customer side they're expecting a, and that has to be delivered so you know january through june that's going to be what i focus on to be honest though that that's not exactly a great responsibility because i've been itching to write this book for three years so i'm very excited i've been itching to write and finish up the zena wealth series i've i planned five books and so you know, writing number four gets us that much closer to being able to have this entire, you know, thing that I want to write done. So this is extremely exciting for me, actually. Not No sense of responsibility on that side is set in. But, you know, I, I do have, you know, from the very beginning, I did set up a spreadsheet when I have the costs of, of producing all the books factored in. And I have the fees. Uh, Kickstarter takes fees and Amazon Payments takes fees. So there's a 5% payment fee from Kickstarter, a 5% payment fee from Amazon Payment Services. So that's 10% off the top. And then, of course, I'm going to be paying my uh, artist and collaborator, Pablo Defendini, and I'll be paying to have the books created. And I want to make that a, a the, you know, I'm not going to print the cheapest possible books. So I want to print some good books. So I've definitely factored in, you know, the cost of, of that part. And, you know, I'm I'm very aware of all that. And so that's, that's the important part. But, you know, I've been following a lot of other Kickstarters, so I've been lucky in that uh, I've gotten to watch other people go through it, and that has allowed me to kind of have a little bit more of an awareness of what I'm getting into ahead of time, I think, which is uh, 
helpful. And so we have to thank people like Murr and Tim Pratt, uh, who kind of have forged the way, you know, taken the first path through this this jungle and showed us what can be done. And uh, now I've kind of, you know, gotten the benefit of watching their Kickstarter projects and come through myself just behind them. Um, Murr was an incredible inspiration when she went ahead and did it. Um, I think the first time I saw Kickstarter was when Stacy Whitman at Two Publishing used it. I think about two years ago. Um, to launch to publishing. And that was so cool to see that happen. And the reaction I had just as someone who was a books that two publishing was going to create got me to donate money to it. Just like, I want to see this happen. I was really excited. And I got me thinking like, Oh, well, here's a mechanism that allows these projects and cross thing, you know, sort of to happen. And that's what got me thinking two years ago that one day I was going to use this to try and see if, if we could do a, a sequel to Sly Mongoose. And it's just been in the back of my head. And then I saw Murr do it successfully and was just blown away by what she did. I saw Tim Pratt do it. And for the last year, Pablo Defendini and I have been scheming and trying to find the time in our, <laughs> in our calendars and when it best syncs up. And you know, earlier in the year, it didn't work at all for me to try and do something like this. I had a lot of projects going all at the same time, a lot of deadlines, a lot of stuff that had to be turned in, like Arctic Rising, the, the book from Tor that will be coming out in February. So those kind of took up all my attention. But as, as I started looking at January, I was like, I don't – I have this open gap, you know, and I, I think that there's no time like the present and I might as well try something like this. And if it doesn't work, then we learn something. But if it does, then – Oh my gosh, what a birthday. My birthday is January 2nd. What a great birthday present it would be to be able to just start work on a novel that I've just wanted to write for three years. So it's just like, do it. Pull the trigger. Let's jump in feet first and try it. You know what? A good point here. I just thought when you, you mentioned you know, your new ones coming out with Tor just in not long. What about, yeah. they say, the professional side of it? You know, you, you do your book and you write it to the best of your ability. But when you're going yeah. through the traditional route, you're obviously going to give that book to an editor who's going to look over and right. who might even say, you know, Toby, we need to kind of maybe change that bit. That process is going to be lost though, isn't it now? Yes, that's one of the things that I'm going to learn about doing this and, and see what, what happens. I want to, you know, one of the things we're exploring doing is some, uh, a number of readers have signed up for the live read-along. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see whether or not that kind of feedback, what kind of feedback I get from the live read-along. I'm kind of curious about, you know, uh, the fact, well, I, I have an intern who is studying to become a copywriter and editor. Uh, who works with me that I found at the local, a local college. Um, of course, this isn't as experienced or as, as awesome as an editor who's been in the field for a very long time, but I'm sort of going to be using her to copy edit and, and offer up editorial suggestions. And I'm going to be using a team of, of beta readers, first readers as well. And I'm going to just sort of go ahead and see what kind of effect that has on the book. Um, since this is a, a, a project that right now is being done between me and the, the 170 or so people who are involved in this Kickstarter project, I'm not releasing the novel yet to everyone else in June. There's going to be a, a quiet period so that people who helped with this Kickstarter project get to read the book exclusively first for a while, kind of like you know people who buy the hardcover get it before people who buy the paperback. And... What I'm hoping is that uh, during that quiet period, I can kind of think uh, about what I've 
created a better book or whether or not it'll need an editor. And if it does need an editor, then I'm, you know, there's the the option of taking some of the money from the Kickstarter project and going forth and looking for an editor if I think that that's it's something that 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 book's going to need. You know, um, on the flip side, this is the fourth book in the series, and I've had a lot of eyes on this outline um, from both other writers. And uh, people involved, you know, who are invested in in this Xenowulf series. So I think that I kind of have an idea for how these books work and what makes them tick. And I'm pretty comfortable trying this. But I think if I were to do a brand new book and a brand new series with brand new characters, that I definitely would bake into the Kickstarter project having an editor um, come in uh, on the project. But for this one, uh, I'm going to take the risk and and move forward with this sort of uh, different structure do you think because you know what i think is fascinating what people find fascinating is this kind of follow along you know like i say i've been popping over the website and and finding out and chatting with you there now is there anywhere where you're going to like up a little bit your experiences i don't mean put it in a book and everything like that but are you (laughs) going to you know get another kickstarter going for that but i mean are you going to like you know do some nice like i guess chunky essays on it so you know the kind of what you've learned and what you've you know the pitfalls you found Certainly, because I, what I found is that, you know, even immediately just creating a Kickstarter project, that some of my ideas about what I was doing were different than some of what other people's ideas were. So, for example, I think of it primarily as a way to pre-fund a book to bring it into, you know, being. But a lot of other people are thinking more like NPR, you know, like it's it's donations and donations. And there are a lot of people who wanted to kick in five or ten bucks and not even get the rewards, but just, pit, you know, move it forward a little bit through the finish line, which was something that me being a sort of uber capitalist that I am was kind of hard to wrap my head around. You know what I mean? Um, that there was a sort of different set of uh, philosophy in different people interacting with me than I was having. I, I really felt comfortable pitching this as a, here's how to pre-order the book and be a part of bringing it in early. And, you know, what you get as a reward is, you get to see the book be made. You get to be a part of making it. You can help bring a book to life, and you get an electronic copy, or you get a paper or a hardcover or a signed hardcover. And if you're really invested in the Zeno Wealth, there are really um, higher levels of support where you can get in and have your your name be written into the book and uh, as a character and as uh, and I'm going to name like a planetary body after you. And so I, I think of that as, as more of a transactional thing. And that's me. That's just how I work. Um, but there are a lot of people who definitely viewed this differently than I was. And so in the future, I think if I were to do another Kickstarter, I have to sort of um, – there's some changes I do want to make in terms of uh, providing support for people who want to offer five or ten bucks. Um, they're important too. It's just that the way I stacked the ladder on this one was um, – in a way to maximize uh, $25, $50, and $100 donations because having looked at all the successful Kickstarter projects in the past, those are the big – that's the meat of the of the Kickstarter projects. And so having gone through all that data, I just really wanted to emphasize those three levels. Now, a lot of people felt that I was sort of being really expensive and uh, you know I understand that critique. But the fact is that like most of the Kickstarter projects that succeed – um, the five and ten dollar donations are usually about 
uh, single digit percentages overall of the overall money raised. In other words, like if someone really wants to see something like a project that you're trying to put forward come into being, they're usually invested enough to usually kick in about 25 bucks. Um, it's kind of like the sweet spot. So with that in mind, I didn't want to price an ebook at five or ten dollars because then everyone would have clustered down there naturally, and it would have really um, changed the profit margins on it. So you know th- that's why I recommend everyone like actually set up a, uh, a spreadsheet and run some different scenarios because when I did that, I really looked at how um, you know uh, that could change things. So yeah, I. I to make a long answer short there, sorry, uh, I definitely want to talk about this stuff because it, there are a lot of people who uh, haven't been reading necessarily a ton of the data about this or looking at all the successful projects that have funded. There's just a lot of people who hear, oh, $25, that sounds expensive, um, particularly from people who probably weren't core readers. Like I got a lot of um, sort of like not angry mail, but just sort of like, oh, you know, this is disappointing that you're charging $25 for the ebook because an ebook should be five bucks and I've never read your stuff and I, there's no way I would pay $25 for something you wrote. And my response is, well, yeah, but this isn't a, this isn't aimed at you Um, down the road, you know, way down the road when this book comes to being, there will be a a cheaper ebook edition, you know, in, in 2012, 2013, sorry. Um, And people will be able to read the apocalypse ocean uh, as part of the entire oeuvre. But for the core fans, the people who have been waiting three years for a sequel to Sly Mongoose, who just, you know, think it's an absolute, it just tragedy that I haven't written the sequel yet. They're like twenty five bucks. I get to read the sequel to Sly Mongoose. That's friggin' fantastic. You know, let's do it. And that's who this project is aimed at. See, there are a lot of people who are kind of on the fringes that 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 are you're not really targeting, um, and and and. It's hard to kind of figure out how to how to price your product, and again, that all comes back down to you know the, this mix of business and art and using this crowdsourcing model. It's really kind of interesting, and I'm looking forward to writing some articles about the thing, the mistakes I made, and I'm, there are some mistakes I definitely made in this uh, how I set it up. But sometimes the only way you make uh, success is to like stumble through the little mistakes like that. <laughs> I think it's it's just fascinating. Do you know what I mean? I'll, just one last question, Toby, just before yeah. you, it, you go. Is, you know, if you're given the choice, would you do this again? Or would you just, you know, send your novel? You know, just if you were a new writer and you had like a bit of a following, like, you know, you, you, you certainly got. Would you send your novel off blind to hope for it does? Or would you go through this whole process again with, the, you know, the, the anxiety of watching you kind of <laughs> maybe fail or anything like that? You know, it, it's such a hard question because I really am a believer in trying all the, all the different things you can. Uh, I just think diversify diversification is a strength and not a problem. And I think, I you know, it's hard for me to explain. I, I don't think I could have done this if I hadn't have had published novels through Tor and, and through all these other publishers because I've I've built up a readership, you know, from people who've discovered me in bookstores and whatnot. And that readership is the core of what then allowed me to leverage, you know, putting this up on Kickstarter to say, Hey, if you want a sequel, would you like to do this? So it's, I think it's this complicated thing. I'm, I'm very happy with what it, what it has done, but I think, you know, there will be other novels that I will be sending out directly to uh, publishers quite happily. In fact, uh, you know, 
uh, I'm actually shopping around paper, you know, you know, novels to or novels with the aim of, you know, getting them to traditional publishing houses, as they're called nowadays. And I'm quite happy with that. So, you know, I'm very happy with all of the above. You know, um, it worked incredibly for Murr to go directly to, you know, Kickstarter, and she had an amazing success. And, you know, so it, it just, it really depends on the author and where you are, you know, and what what you're trying to do. I still... I, I still want to send it to New York because ultimately, I mean, here let's let's get down to brass tacks. I mean, a lot of people are seeing ten grand as how much I've raised on you know a little bit over ten grand, and, and they're thinking, wow, ten grand. But again, like I said, it's ten uh, percent for all the financial fees and the Kickstarter fees. Um, I got to pay an artist, and I want to pay fairly because he does amazing work. And then there's going to be the printing costs, which right now look like they're going to be about a thousand to fifteen hundred. So I'm not running away with you know all that money in my bank. Some of that is is going to have to pay for creating this product. And so you know it's it's okay money. And I think the way in which it's going to benefit me is that I control all the rights to this. And so selling it as an ebook and a you know trade pro- paperback probably down the road you know, in a year's time or so will be a good thing and that will help me make, you know, some more money over time. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if I were to write a completely original new novel and shop that around, there would be more money to be made. There'd be more money to be made with the initial advance for where I am in my career right now and with the audio rights and with foreign translation rights, I'd, I'd make a lot more money. And so this is more about like, keeping up that relationship with my readers who love the Zeno wealth. It's about wanting to continue the story of Pepper. It's wanting to finish out the series. I mean, not everything I do is purely about money. Some of it is purely about uh, the fact that there are stories I want to tell and the fact that I don't want them to be cut off too early. And so I'd really like to finish this five book series. And this offers me a tool to do that. And I think it's a gift to all of us. It gets to be a gift to me because I get to write it. It's a gift to the readers who invested so heavily in those first three books and, and have really carried me on their shoulders. And it's, it's just a really cool thing for all of us to win. You know, you get, it's not often in life you get win, win, win scenarios. And I think this is one of them. And yet, you know, if, to be honest, if I wanted to be a very cold hearted economic pragmatist, I probably should spend January through June working on an all original fantasy novel that, you know, I send around to lots and lots of, you know, uh, houses. But the fact is, this is a book I want to write. And that's, this is why I got into becoming a writer, because I wanted to do things I wanted to do. I didn't want people telling me to count pennies and to do things that only made economic sense. I got into this to be happy and to write stories that I wanted, I love and believe in. And so this is a tool that lets me do it. And so I'm pretty jazzed. I'm, it's, it's just an all-around win situation. Oh, honestly, Toby, I'm happy for you. I'm ecstatic for you, to be quite honest. Like I say, when <laughs> when I watch, I was watching it, you know, and then I thought it's going to stall, and then it's just come great at the end. Oh, it's just yeah. honestly, it's just it's made by you know time as well. Just being there, it's all you know, almost like being there with your mate, watching you know, yeah, like yeah. watching him going to fail. You know what I mean? That's like a, <laughs> a scary thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like because then you you like the doubt that must go through your mind. Oh, I'm. God, do they not like it? Am I no good? You know, all this must just kind of run through your well, head. But oh, 
No, I mean, I don't, I actually don't think, like I said in our previous interview, I don't think this is necessarily easier than sending it out to a, a publisher and getting it sent back because you're really hanging it all out there, <laughs> you know? And like I said, when you, when you hit that slow spot, you just kind of have to sit there and go like, okay, you know, maybe this won't happen and that's okay, you know? And, but everyone's sitting there looking, you know, it's, it's very much a case of you're going to be facing the, the, the chance of being rejected in public by everyone if it doesn't work out. And that can be tougher for someone. That can be tougher for someone. Well, you're, you're, so. a, you're certainly a brave man, Toby. That's, uh, that's just amazing. <laughs> Would you do us a favor? Would you come back on? You know, like once you've wrote the book and you've getting out the e-books and everything like that, you've kind of put the kickstart yeah. of the bed. Would you come back on and just, yes. just tell us, you know, how it... You know, because yes, at the moment, everything's good and you're past, but there might be some <laughs> kind of little kind of, I never expected that, you know, because yeah, I totally. remember, didn't Le- uh, Mert order like some copies up and they got the wrong, it was the wrong and she had to use some of her money to kind of write it with, you know, print yes. out more covers, you know, but it'd be nice just to get you back on just to see, sure. you know, how it went afterwards. Totally. I'd be delighted to come back oh, on. that's lovely. Well, honestly, Toby, I am thrilled a bit for you. And I, I know like, everyone Starships over will be as well. Just, you know, watching you go through this process. And excellent news. Well done, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for spreading the word and uh, being there to back me. <laughs> thank you very much then, Toby. You know, I am so thrilled for... Toby, you know what I mean? Just amazing. And I had a little chat with him after we kind of finished the, the, the interview there. And, you know, he was just saying, you know, if things are looking good, I don't know if anyone knows the kind of a little bit of history about Tobias Bikel, but a couple of years ago, you know, he was kind of rushed into hospital emergency and everything. You know, there was, it, was, it was pretty close for him at one point, you know what I mean? And you can go on his blog and, you know, there's, there's, I was saying to him, you know, you kind of follow people on Twitter and everything like that. And then I just seen these photographs and there's Toby lying in a hospital bed, you know, and it's been a kind of, I think like a long recovery back for him. And he just says things are, you know, looking really good there now, especially, you know, this Kickstarter. It's like, you know, it is eBay on steroids. It's just, you know, that kind of final countdown and... To, to get it, do you know what I mean? That must be exciting. And Toby's saying he's got some books coming out. He's got a book at the end of the, what he says there, the end of this year. It's all looking good for him. And I'm just chuffed a bit because at one point it wasn't looking very good for him. Do you know what I mean? So Toby, honestly, it just, it it made my, you know, kind of week, month, whatever year. It's lovely to see, you know, something good happen. Thank you so much for sharing it. And we'd like to say we'll get Tobias back on there and... After it's all done, do you know what I mean? After he's wrote the book and he's sent out all the copies, and is it as good as what you thought it was? That would be great to find out as well. Next up is Film Talk with our very own Dennis Lee. And, Den- and I want a big hats off to Dennis because it, it was looking, actually, and this is now is going to be, it's turned into quite a, a chunky mother of a show. But just a couple of days ago, it wasn't, you know what I mean? It didn't have anything really put together. I had a story, and that was it. I, I emailed Dennis. I said, Dennis, give us, a, give us a film talk. I haven't got anything to go in. And Dennis was saying, I'm at a conference. He's at, I think he's in South Africa somewhere. And he's, he had to do his research. While he was at this conference, works conference, on his BlackBerry, he had to travel home, watch the film in the wee small hours of the, the night, and then... 
you know, record the show in God knows what time you went to bed that night. But Dennis, I just want to say a big thank you for, for doing that. You know, and we really appreciate it here. So, sir. A review from the Jacaranda City. Hello again from the depths of my Pretoria wardrobe. Breaking with my tradition of reviewing end-of-the-world movies, today I'm going to talk about a film that brought whole new worlds to the screen. Worlds that we experience every day, but either cannot see or ignore. Today, I'm going to talk about what was one of my favourite science fiction films as a child, 1957's The Incredible Shrinking Man. And I would suggest that, while this film has a PG rating, it is definitely something to be enjoyed by viewers of all ages. The film stars Grant Williams as Robert Scott Carey. Not a big star. In fact, I can't recall seeing any of his other movies. The screenplay was written by Richard Matheson, from his own novel. Matheson is more famous for his novel The Omega Man, filmed as The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price in 1964, as The Omega Man, starring Charlton Heston in 1971, and as I Am Legend, starring Will Smith in 2007. The Incredible Shrinking Man was Matheson's breakout work, and he has since written numerous movie screenplays, plus countless TV episodes, including 16 episodes of the original Twilight Zone series. The movie was directed by Jack Arnold, who had previously directed It Came From Outer Space and Creature From The Black Lagoon, and who later went on to become director-producer of Gilligan's Island. Many movies of the 1950s explored the general fear of the atomic bomb. What would be the effects of fallout on the population? Another of my childhood favourites was 1954's THEM! I have to say it like that, as I can't see the title without picturing the little girl at the start who can only scream the word THEM! In that movie, radioactive fallout resulted in ants growing to gigantic proportions. In The Incredible Shrinking Man, a combination of a radioactive cloud, which Carey is exposed to while sunbathing on his brother's boat, and a dose of insecticide, with which he's accidentally sprayed months later, sends our hero in the opposite direction. Once the change begins, the movie details Carey's realisation that he is shrinking, and his growing anger and frustration. He tells his wife Louise to start thinking about their relationship, because he is changing. And she says, as long as you've got this ring on your finger, you've got me. Of course, that is the moment it drops off of his shrinking finger. By the next scene, he's the size of an eight-year-old, then a five-year-old. By now, Carey is a celebrity, but the attention is putting a great strain on both him and Louise. Scientists find an antitoxin and stop the shrinking, but Carey, now three foot tall, leaves home and comes across a freak show. One of the little people, Clarice, convinces Carey that he still has a lot to live for and he goes back home to continue his book. A couple of weeks later, he's talking to Clarice, who seems to have taken over quite a big role in his life. He's positive once more, until he realises that the shrinking has begun again. Back home, Carey lives in a doll's house. He's treating Louise terribly and contemplates suicide, but still hopes that the scientists can cure him. One day, while Louise is out at the shops, the pet cat gets in and Carey has to fight it off by pulling a lamp off of the table. He gets knocked down the stairs into the basement and, when Louise comes back, 
She thinks that he's been eaten by the cat. Down in the basement, Carrie has to overcome a range of obstacles. First, there is getting around when one's only two inches tall. Then there's finding food. The boiler bursts and nearly drowns him. The scene that I remember the most is towards the end where Carrie fights a spider, finally managing to kill it with a pin thrust into its body from below. That night, even smaller, Carrie manages to get out of the grill in the basement wall and stares up at the stars, finally at peace with what he is becoming. The whole transition from full-sized man to less than an inch is done pretty well. To 21st century eyes, the techniques are obvious, but the physical props really make the scenario almost believable. For example, when the boiler is dripping massive drops of water, the special effects people apparently filled condoms with water and dropped them from above the shot. I've certainly seen worse effects from far younger movies. Apart from the special effects, I would like to recommend the movie in terms of the literary value of the dialogue. Much of the action of the film is commented upon by Carey in the form of a voiceover. Here's an example. The cellar stretched before me like some vast primeval plain, empty of life, littered with the relics of a vanished race. No desert island castaway ever faced so bleak a prospect. The movie was but one in a tradition of shrinking movies. It was preceded, for example, by Dr Cyclops in 1940, and has been followed by numerous movies since, such as Fantastic Voyage in 1966, The Incredible Shrinking Woman in 1981, Inner Space in 1987, and Honey, I Shrank the Kids in 1989. There was even a plan to produce The Fantastic Shrinking Girl in the 50s, where Carrie's wife Louise was going to shrink too, but Universal dropped that project. There are reports that there is to be a remake of The Incredible Shrinking Man in 2012. Unfortunately, it's noted that it's planned as an action comedy. While it may turn out to be an enjoyable romp, I doubt that there would be much room for such a soliloquy as that of Carey at the end of the original, as he climbs out of the cellar and stares at the stars. I was continuing to shrink. To become what? The infinitesimal. What was I? Still a human being? Or was I the man of the future? If there were other bursts of radiation, other clouds drifting across seas and continents, would other beings follow me into this vast new world? So close, the infinitesimal and the infinite. But suddenly, I knew they were really the two ends of the same concept. The unbelievably small and the unbelievably vast eventually meet like the closing of a gigantic circle. I looked up, as if somehow I would grasp the heavens, the universe, worlds beyond number, God's silver tapestry spread across the night. And in that moment, I knew the answer to the riddle of the infinite. I had thought in terms of man's own limited dimension. I had presumed upon nature that existence begins and ends in man's conception, not nature's and I felt my body dwindling, melting, becoming nothing. My fears melted away, and, in their place, came acceptance. All this majesty of creation, it had to mean something. And then I meant something too. Yes, smaller than the smallest, I meant something too.
To God, there is no zero. I still exist. So, after all this talk of macroverses and microverses, I think I shall retire to my recliner to contemplate the nature of existence. But before I do, there are a couple of spider webs in the bathroom. I think that I should clear them out first, just in case. There you go again. Dennis, what can I say? Thank you so much. Next up is Joe Haldeman, main fiction. How about that? And to tie in nicely with Starship Sova Stories Volume 3, we have a Joe Haldeman story in there as well, so do look out for that. And throughout, you know, my kind of dealings with Starship Sova, everyone's, you know, there's many a time people say, what's your, what's your top story, Tony? What's your top book? There's always been a, a joint top book. Forever War by Joe Haldeman and... Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. Them two books, I can't really distinguish which is, you know, which is which one's sneaking ahead of first, but you know what I mean, that book is just stunning. If anyone hasn't read that, do you know what I mean? You want your back of your head slapping. <laughs> Please go out and get it. He's also Joe's also got out Marsbound, which came out in two thousand and eight. He's got Starbound, which came out last year, two thousand and ten, and then there's a forthcoming Earthbound, which comes out in December two thousand eleven. And I'll try and get you know to tie in to marry in all that and everything to do with Volume Three. I'll get I'll try and hopefully get Joe on you know get an interview with Joe as well just to see how he's doing because again Joe Haldeman had a kind of bit of a health scare. I think it was last year, maybe the year before as well. So, <laughs> these scares with these writers, what's it doing to them? <laughs> a great little book I read as well by Joe Haldeman. If anyone hasn't, you know, time machines, time travel, everything like that. Joe Haldeman's The Accidental Time Machine. That's fantastic. Get a hold of that and just whiz through that. You'll just love it. This story about it here, Never Blood Enough, came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the October-November bumper issue 2009. It is narrated by our very own Simon Hildebrand. Simon is full-time web developer, father, husband, and part-time game developer, songwriter, and most important, a little bit at the end I like, is brewer. Oh, Simon, sir. Did anyone remember? Simon actually built in the Android marketplace there. There's, there's a Starship Sova app there to get you kind of podcasting. It was Simon that built that as well. What a guy, Simon. Simon actually, as well, you know what I mean? He came with this idea of maybe like 3D printing for Starships over as well. I haven't actually spoken to Simon about that again, so we'll maybe have to chase that up. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Never Blood Enough by Joe Holderman. She looked like the work of some demented artist, nude, lying on the bed in a relaxed posture, but she looked as if she'd been carved out of wax. The sheets underneath her were drenched in blood. What do you think, Doc? I don't see no wound. I'm not that kind of doctor. A PhD in xenobiology didn't prepare you for this, but I'd been a medic in a war and could help with simple things. Did you know her? Staring, shaking his head. Only like everyone knows everyone here. This was the largest outpost on the planet Runaway, but its shifting population had never reached 2,000. That population contained only one medical doctor, and he'd been missing for two weeks, presumed dead. There was a lot of that going around. Always. Could it be, you know, natural? A female thing? I don't think so. 
Not this much blood, not sudden. I had an aunt with dysmenorrhea, who sometimes lost so much she needed transfusions. But this was catastrophic. This much blood in a war wound, and you'd be looking for pieces. Check her back. Help me out here. Dead people seem to weigh twice as much as live ones. He tugged on her shoulder while I pushed her hip. She was still in rigor mortis. Her skin felt colder than it was. God, was she shot? Don't think so. I'd seen plenty of laser and bullet wounds. Never anything like this. She had three identical holes in her back, puckered craters about an inch and a half in diameter, one under each shoulder blade and one over the right kidney. Her back was stained dark red from the blood, but there was no liver mortis, discoloration of tissue from blood settling after death. She must have bled out very fast. I pulled on a plastic glove and felt around inside the lowest wound. No projectile. I found the kidney, hard and shrunken. Maybe that was normal. Does look like a weapon, I said. Maybe something new. You know what she does for a living? Uh, did? Receptionist. Down at that new hunting lodge. They found me when she didn't answer the phone. He owned the little shack and was renting it to her. I looked at her face in profile. I had seen her. We worked for the same people, in a sense. Everybody worked for Hartford, finally. I looked around. The windows were closed and locked. There was no blood spatter, just the mattress. The door was locked? Yo, not chained though. Pretty girl. Yo, I guess. She did look pretty horrible now. I couldn't explain the amount of blood, even if the renal artery had been severed, and healthy people don't lie there and bleed to death. Maybe she had been drugged or something. Last week I'd checked the doctor's office, when he went missing and it was sophisticated enough to have a blood chemistry machine, though whether I was sophisticated enough to get anything out of it, I didn't know. The blood hadn't completely dried in the small of her back. I scooped some up with my gloved finger and scraped it into a plastic bag. "'What you gonna do with the body?' he asked nervously. It was a problem. The two people we'd buried outside the stockade fence had been dug up and eaten, we think by vulture moles. I'll get a couple of people out from the labour pool with a body bag. Keep her in the meat locker for the time being. Oh, Jesus, man. Or we could bury her in your backyard here. See what she attracts. Runaway was one of those panspermia worlds, whose creatures had DNA and may have had a common microbial ancestor with Earth. But their evolution had diverged from ours considerably around the time of the amoeba. This part of the planet was a zoo gone wild, the island continent Vita Brevis spread three-quarters of the way around the equator, and it teemed with forms of life that were found nowhere else on the planet. Some of them were unlike anything on any other planet, and even among the large creatures, probably not 10% had been identified and slotted into a provisional taxonomy. Large predators are rare in most ecologies, because there is only so much food per acre in the form of prey. Runaway, though, was blessed with a plethora of creatures my father would have called varmints, animals ranging in size from mouse to cat, and if none were especially cute or cuddly, they were still prey. Seven legs were more common than four or two, scales more common than fur or feathers. The things that ate them were similarly exotic, and indiscriminate enough in diet to make you careful outside the settlement wall. It made the planet a nirvana for big game hunters, and hunting grew into its main industry when the market price for rare earths took a nosedive about fifteen years ago.
the mines shut down and the population adapted. That involved another kind of predation. A high-priced advertising firm stepped in, and Runaway became the most sought-after rustic vacation spot this side of Arcturus. The accommodations weren't four-star, but to people wealthy enough to travel this far, the crudeness was a refreshing change. They told their friends, and their friends told their friends, and before long the support population for all these rich people reached a thousand. So the Confederation had to send an administrator. That would be me, Travis Dobb, xenobiologist without portfolio. A small problem got out of control at the University of Chicago Mars, and I sort of lost tenure and citizenship and a wife all at once. And there was a misunderstanding with the local police, and perhaps too hastily I sought an off-planet job, and so here I came, and this I became, with a world full of exotic alien life out there, the most experienced xenobiologist on the planet had to push paper around being a budget manager, arbitrator, dockmaster, and sometimes physician's assistant, coroner, and cop. Not because I'm especially qualified, just because there's no one else. When the population does pass 2,000, the Confederation will send a cadre out to take care of that stuff. Until then, I'm it. What xenobiology I do has to be on my own time. I let the landlord go and called the labour pool and told them where I thought they could find a body bag. While waiting for them to come, I searched the room for clues. It felt voyeuristic going through her things, the more so because I was no more qualified for it than your average xenobiologist. But there wasn't an actual criminal investigator within light years. If she had been someone important, I guess the Confederation would send someone from Selva or Earth. They hadn't bothered for the other two murders I'd reported, a miner and a whore. She had a sketchbook lying on top of the dresser, full of carefully rendered pencil drawings, mostly of herself. Mirror images, of course. I checked her face, and the mole was on the wrong side. I slipped her eyelids closed, and she looked less scary. Some of the pictures were landscapes and meticulous drawings of trees and bushes, done outside the wall. I knew the spot, a picnic area that's open to the woods, but protected by automatic lasers. You didn't go beyond it without prearrangement. She probably spent some time there waiting for hunting parties to come back. Hey, cut up a mambo bird and barbecue it. Seven drumsticks, no waiting. She was no better housekeeper than I am. The top drawer of her dresser had a few folded outfits and a jumble of underwear. The second drawer was dirty clothes. Feeling creepy, I pulled out the blouses and checked the backs for blood. Nothing. The bottom drawer was mostly random personal stuff. Two cubes of hollows that seemed to be from Earth, one showing a New York vacation. A box of seashells from someplace, not here. A sex toy and a hand laser with 78% charge. It was a standard army-issued DKW, same as I had in my desk drawer in the office. If my job had me waiting on the other side of the fence, I'd carry one too. No holster, but it would fit in a large purse. Where was her bag? I found it in the bathroom, next to the toilet. Nothing odd. Wallet and passport. A little bit of money. Who would I send it to? A notebook with some scribbled notes, but no audio or video. Find Sibelius for Henry. Not an obvious murder clue. The only window was locked, as the door had been, and the glass was not too clean. There was a film of dust on the sill. I ran my finger along the floor, and picked up some there, too. If she'd known that strangers would be pouring through her stuff, she might have cleaned up. Maybe hidden the vibrator. I hadn't seen a dead woman since Georgia. Too many of them there. A helpless old feeling washed over me, and my eyes got wet and stung. I rubbed them and blew my nose. I couldn't sit on the bed, so I leaned against the wall. What had she done, the poor, damn, innocent thing? 
Who did she piss off? Some wealthy client who would tag her from light years away, on a whim? I checked the door, and there was no sign of it having been forced. Only her thumbprint and the landlord's, and now mine, would open it. Of course, any lock could be subverted. Feeling foolish, I went back to the body and checked. Both thumbs were still attached. I probably would have noticed earlier if one had been removed. Then I checked the body, inch by inch, looking for who knows what. The soles of her feet were dirty, from walking around barefoot. Naked? Why not? The window just looked out on the wall. There were no bruises on her body, though I wasn't sure what effect total exsanguination might have on that. Small abrasions on both knees. Nothing obvious under her fingernails, though I suppose a forensic scientist would be thorough there. A forensic scientist would check for rape. I couldn't do that to her. Well, be honest. To her it wouldn't make any difference. It was my own illogical sense of propriety. Sticking a finger into a wound was okay. A dead body's bloody wound was public property. The vagina was still private. She hadn't been dead too long. There was no smell of that. The air conditioning was pretty high, though. My notebook said that rigor mortis could last two days at this temperature. I got through to her supervisor at the lodge, Simeon Tovell, who invited me to come talk to her at 1700. She was upset by the news, of course, and didn't have any idea who might want to harm the woman. Two guys came with a body bag, and I helped them wrestle her body inside. They carried her pendulous weight to the utility floater and skimmed away. I sat in the open door for a while, feeling useless, feeling like shit. Five hours before I had to talk to Toville. My place was on the other side of the sprawling settlement. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I could have whistled up a cab and charged it to Hartford, company business. But it was a nice day and the woman was going to stay dead, so I walked. It hadn't rained in a couple of days, and the road was firm, crunchy gravel. Fast wisps of clouds sped through the golden sky, though, and that might mean rain soon. Weather comes in hammer blows here. You might want to be inside. Doc Borsky's office fronted on a warehouse road. I let myself in and went back to the blood chemistry machine. No instructions anywhere obvious, but I got the model number, Nordstrom D67, and my notebook downloaded a manual. 
I skimmed it and managed to set up a sample, using a tongue depressor to scrape the drying blood out of the plastic bag. The machine thought for one second and said, Sample error, followed by a screenful of gibberish. I saved it under her name and again under mine, and also wrote her name on the plastic bag and put it in Doc Borsky's fridge. Found a prescription pad in his desk and scribbled an explanation, and left it centred on the blotter. Walked out feeling less than useful. Past the warehouses that ringed the landing strip, there was the gaudy Main Street district. What could have been less than one long block in Certus City, the Martian town I used to think was small. Runaway did have its charms. I went by the two comfort centres. I have my own sexual solutions, thank you. But did drop in on my favourite bar, Snaggletooth Gertie's. The only casino in town, and therefore the cheapest drinks. Hey, Dr. Dobb. The bartender and part owner, Roos, who was also the de facto peacekeeper and bouncer. He was from Selva, and a bit on the small side from that planet. Seven and a half feet of quiet muscle. The usual? Yeah. He tapped me a ceramic cup of dry red wine. It was a perfect hemisphere. If you didn't set it down carefully, it would spill and cost you. Roos, you know Sarah Templeton? Pretty girl from the lodge? She's been in a few times. Saw her at that wedding a couple of weeks ago. He shook his head. Don't think she likes big guys. When I pinged her, she sort of cringed. Know anything about her? Anything odd? He set my drink down meticulously and had a sip of his own, something amber, studying me. What do you mean, odd? I don't know what I mean. I tasted the wine, cool and not sweet. She died. Died? She was just a kid. Selvins lived long. Roos was probably eighty in Earth years, and not past his prime. Doc Porsky still gone? I nodded. Unless he snuck out on the last shuttle, he's just gone. What did she die of? Murder, maybe? Not sure. Looks like she might have been shot in the back, but I don't know with what. I described the wounds. Couldn't have been a laser. No burn marks? And no cauterization. The wounds are open, bled out. You saw a lot of that, on Earth? Enough, in Georgia. Nothing exactly like this, though. Well, God knows what kind of weapons people sneak in here. Or just carry in. Weapons don't always look like weapons. He set his drink down and leaned back. Georgia, down by Tennessee and all? No, on the other side of the planet, Eurasia. But you are American, right? Before you went to Mars. Yeah. Politics. Long, boring story. The enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Or the anima of my enemy. You never been to Earth? Just Selva in here. Georgia's a big place? Millions of people. More than all the Confederation, I guess. Squeezed in between Russia and Turkey, if that means anything to you. He shook his head. You had a bad time there. Not as bad as some. Glad it's over. As if it ever was. I took a big swallow. No blood spatter. No what? That woman had three really big wounds. There should be blood all over the floor, all over the walls. Yeah? Nobody cleaned up afterwards. The floor was dusty. The furniture, the window. It was all over the bed? That's right. But how could that be? His face creased in thought. He'd been a soldier too. Like a booby trap or something? Like she flopped down on the bed and it went off? Maybe. But you'd think something that powerful would blow on through. No exit wounds. I took out my notebook and showed him the first picture. He flinched. Oh. She was... She was pretty. And young and innocent. 
Of course, you never know. But she hadn't been here three months, according to her super. Everybody liked her. One person didn't. Maybe he followed her here. That's a thought. I drained the cup. Another? No. I want to go back and take another look. Can't send a report out till the morning shuttle, anyhow. Can't help feeling I missed something obvious. Want another pair of eyes? Fish can cover the bar. Sure, Roos. I'd appreciate it. He punched a cab, and it was settling to the ground as we left the bar. A one-minute hop to the woman's place. I thumbed the door open and immediately appreciate what a new pair of eyes can see. I thought I'd looked everywhere. Everywhere but up, turns out. He points at the ceiling. What the hell is that? There are three creatures clinging to the rafter beams, like bats. If bats had seven furry clawed appendages. They match the colour of the dark wood. That thing that looks like an octopus body is a translucent sack of dark fluid the size of a football. You ever see them before? He shakes his head. Christ and Buddha, is that her blood? I guess. Three of them. Three wounds. This planet is so fucked, he says. A vampire chameleon octopus? Furry, too. The xenobiologist in me has to marvel. How could they have gotten in, under the door? Giant cockroaches on Earth can do that. And why would she get into bed with them? On top of them? Safe to say she didn't. They killed her first, or knocked her unconscious. Would she bleed out so completely if her heart had stopped? He pats his hip. Didn't bring a gun. Let's don't kill them, I say. We need one alive anyhow to study. Okay, Doc. You climb up there and pick one out. Sure. I call the lodge and explain the situation. The safari manager says he'll send someone out with a cage right away. I move around to where the light's better. I have seen them. That sack was hidden away, small, under the thorax. Saw a few down by the picnic area. Tried to catch one, but it got away. Good thing. They were kind of cute, like hamsters. Maybe she brought them home. Roos and I have both lived on Runaway for more than a year. We could learn caution. But I don't say anything when he takes a broom out of a closet and uses it to prod one of the things. I don't know when I've seen an animal move so fast. It streaks down that broomstick in a flash and clamps onto his hand. He screams bloody murder, and the other two creatures launch themselves, one at him and one at me. I bat it away and leap halfway across the room, towards the drawer with the woman's gun. My collarbone cracks when I land. By the time I get the drawer open and the laser unlocked, the thing is clamped on my ankle, and a cold, dead numbness radiates up my leg. I fire a wild shot that brushes it, and it takes off across the room like a dervish. I make scorch marks on three walls, missing it. Then it gets back up to the rafters and holds still. I take one aimed shot that blows clotted blood all over everything. I try to stand up and fall over, one leg a dead log crawl across the room towards Roos. One of the things is on his wrist. I steady the pistol with both hands and squeeze off a beam. The thing pops in a spray of blood. The other one is on his throat. No choice. I crawl up and put the muzzle sideways against the thing and squeeze. It blows up in a spray of dark blood, and then bright blood gushes from Roos's neck. I put my hand over the wound and then pull up his shirt to staunch it. He makes a clearing throat noise and draws out some blood and mucus, looking dead. Fading out, I look down and see that my ankle is also pulsing blood. Anticoagulant. That much? I am totally calm. Dying, but okay. Everything dies. I blink really hard, staying awake. This is how she felt. 
phone in my shirt pocket. It takes forever to reach it, like a dim, dull dream. I slowly punch 911. Shit, wrong planet. 999. Blood, I say. We need lots of blood. Though we do have blood everywhere. I fall asleep. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is certainly Joe Haldeman's. You don't want Joe come chasing after you. Uh, big thank you to Simon as well. Simon, thank you so much. Do look out for Mr. Haldeman in Starship Sofa Stories Volume 3. It's getting close. 11, 11, 11 for the publication date. You'll be able to buy it in many formats. There will be the hardback signature edition as well. That's coming out. Everything will be probably, the ex- well, I'm guessing, so exactly the same price, exactly the same kind of formats we had last time. So please keep your eyes out for that. You know, that will help support the sofa. So, it's been a while since I've did like a, a kind of meta show. I think it was last year, in between you know, the I think it was between December and January, and I probably want to do that again. But this is just a kind of a little bit of feedback, you know, just to say what will happen and what's planned. You know, what I mean, to get some kind of involvement and see if we can do anything with the the sofa. And one of my ideas was to maybe every month put out an ebook or an e-magazine to accompany the, the show. So get the kind of facts, article contributors and maybe some of the stories in there as a, you know, once a month with the, the cover art, put it out as an e-book as well. That runs into loads of complications, do you know what I mean? First off, just oodles of work for everyone involved, do you know what I mean? A lot of the, the fact article people there, you know, especially I was, I was talking to Amy, and do you know how Amy just puts that down, that show, which I think is amazing. It's just bullet points, do you know what I mean? And it's just, that's all stored in our mind, all that's memory, you know what I mean? Which is just amazing. So some someone like Amy might not be in there all the time. She's, what Amy actually suggested was, though, she does like a lot of the kind of science fiction conventions, like speaking, you know, and they would be going in there, which would be fantastic to have something like that. But some of the, you know, I got a, a little bit of feedback from certain people, and it would be nice to have some of the fact articles in there for reference, you know, to go back, you know, to, to get it on your Kindle, to get it, you know, just digitally somewhere and have little re- references, you know, so you can go back, you know, because it's lovely. Audio is lovely, you know, in the car and, you know, just consuming it. But that's it, it's gone, you know, it's 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 one of those things, it's always been one of those things where, you know, you it keeps on going and going, you know, you, unless you press pause, the story will keep on going, you know, and it's always nice to have a bit of a reference point to jump back to. So, do we need, do you know what I mean, do we need a, a, an e-book? Is it, is it something, or an e-magazine e- once a month come out, you know, because we have the artwork, you know, the artwork's stunning, and it comes on the site... For that month, and we've got it as best we can to have it there at the front of the page, and that's it, though. You know, yes, and it goes into the gallery, but it'd be nice to kind of to wrap it up in there. You know, it'd be lovely to make even a magazine. God, that would be fantastic—a printed magazine. But prices are just unreal for that. You know what I mean? Now, and this is where it gets to. Where where do I kind of take it? Do do we kind of? Give it out for free? Do we charge, you know, things like that for a magazine? Initially, you know, it would be just lovely to just keep, keep it out keep it out for free. Whether that we can keep that up, I don't know. Whether we actually want an e-magazine. This is where the kind of feedback I'm wanting. I'm going to try and put out a little kind of questionnaire if anyone's there. Who's signed up for the emails? Who's, you know, 
put on my kind of Twitter feed, everything on Facebook or on Google+. Plus. I'll try and get this poll, you know, nomination thing signed. You know, if anybody wants to kind of take part in this questionnaire, please, you know, just to give us some guidance on what, what to do. Because I think it would be nice to, you've kind of still got, this is me kind of feeling, we've still got to kind of move with the times. And yes, it's always good, you know, do what you do. And stick to it and do it well. You know, and I kind of think Starship Silver does that, you know, perfectly. But you, you still got to, you know, not stay stagnant all the time. And I've always been kind of pleased the way Starship Silver has gone, you know, and, and kind of moving in different directions. Like you say, all of a sudden doing this, you know, the, the Volume 3. We've been doing that for a few years now. Just to put out this ebook, you know. And one of my thoughts was, though, is to kind of make it attractive as well, is to have other you know, other little articles in there. And this is, again, this is where I come to you. You know, yes, there might be someone sitting out there who's not that keen on getting the audio set up or, you know, how to do it or anything like that, but is quite happy to kind of sit and type and write up stuff, you know. And if you've got, you know, if you want to do that and participate in Starships over e-magazine that comes out, you know, we will certainly consider anything, you know. Anything at this time. (laughs) Your mum's recipes. Or a Christmas pudding. That would be nice. So let us know. Do you know what I mean? Starshipsover at gmail.com or like I say, via anywhere on, on the internet, Facebook, Twitter and Google+. And like I say, if you're on the newsletter, I'll I'll put out a little questionnaire as well and that'll be hopefully scattered throughout the the universe. So hopefully someone will get and, and, and participate in that. I mean, one of the kind of the big hits or the big drawbacks or the big stumbling blocks, I guess you would say, for Starship Server doing this e-magazine or, you know, and giving it away for free as well, is the writers. Do you know, this is straight away cutting into their kind of little world, their little income. And that's, you know, we, we don't want to do that. Do we pay them? Do you know what I mean? Do we kind of go down this model? How do I fund it? Do you know what I mean? I'm sitting here, right? I've got about 87 pence in my pocket, and that's it. That's my life. And that has got to go on two postage stamps to post some letters from your wife. So these are the kind of, That's honestly... That's bloody raggy arse jeans and bloody T-shirt that's got a rip in it. That's me. So how, you know, how do we kind of fund this? How do I... Never mind the fund it. Would the writers let the stories go? Some certainly wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? Some, it just, you know, it's, like, see, you cannot expect them to, neither. Do you know? So one idea I was thinking, do we go down and kind of just use some of the, the Gutenberg stories? Or do we get some stories in from, you know, people that wouldn't mind letting Starships over put their story up for free as well, you know? And it, obviously, it's got to be good quality. I don't want to just kind of put up, you know... And, he, and Barry's from the bakeries who's typed it out, you know, <laughs> while he was on his dinner having a fag, you know what I mean, once upon a time. It's, or you'll end up with, <laughs> you'll end up with some of my stories. And you don't want that, you know what I mean? Barry, Barry from the baker would be much better. So, you know what I mean, what, what do we do? And, again, Yes, we'll get some stories in by people, and you've got to read them all, do you know what I mean? And that's like way too much time to take on an editor, you know what I mean? Someone like that. So that is some thoughts. If you've got any other thoughts or anything else, do you know what I mean? We're coming up to a new year, please let us know, do you know what I mean? Sometimes I kind of run out of ideas, but the whole ethos of Starship's over is it's a community thing, do you know what I mean? Do we 
kind of sharing ideas, please send some over if you've got some ideas. Next up is our very own Diane Severson with Portry Planet. Diane! Welcome to the fourth edition of Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. I was so moved by the first poem you'll hear today that it gave me the idea for this show's theme. A lot of speculative fiction and fantasy takes place in space or on planets other than Earth, or places other than the main character's normal surroundings. Even if, or perhaps especially because it is difficult to get to these places, or the characters are mystified about how they got there in the first place, one of the main points for tension in science fiction is this business of returning home. The heroine may be longing to go home, thinking about home, or actually coming home. Sometimes, home becomes a different place as a result of their experiences, or is clearly something which only exists in the mind. The experiences related in today's set of poems run the gamut of what you might expect, and also some I bet you won't. You'll hear poetry by Anne K. Schwader, Terry Ralph, Melissa Frederick, Lynn C. A. Gardner, Rachel Swirsky, David Kapaska Merkel, Joanne Merriam, Dennis M. Lane, Rich Magahiz, Mary Ness, Jeffrey A. Landis, and Michael Trim. After Poetry Planet number two, I received some constructive criticism about poets' biographies, so I'm going to keep them to a minimum this time. While I think it's important to point you toward where you can read or buy more of their work, I also think that most of you are capable of sauntering over to Starship Sofa's website to follow the links provided there, or even of doing a little Googling yourselves, no? So if the poet has appeared on Poetry Planet before, I will dispense with all the info other than where the poem has previously appeared. I will still introduce new poets, but more briefly. And, as always, the plethora of links will be made available on the website. Rich and Strange by Anne K. Schwader When they come back from the stars, we will not know them. Dark seas have washed their faces clean of love, or loss, or fear, past earthly comprehension. Their bones are cold sleep coral now, eroded by slowly dreaming centuries, and light from dying stars our skies have long forgotten still lingers in the black pearls of their eyes. When they come back from the stars, we will not know them. Their tongues have twisted comets out of thought and forged new orbits for the myths we made by fading firelight in the caves of winter. Sun winds send siren gusts like tides beneath their words, between their syncopated hearts, forgetting, then remembering to beat. When they come back from the stars, they will not know us, except as footprints on some night-drowned beach they walked as children, pining even then for oceans gravity did not command, nor pitted satellites predict. Our voices cry, little more than silence to their senses, distanced forever by something rich and strange. Rich and Strange was a Reisling nominee and first appeared in Strange Horizons, you can also find it in her Bram Stoker Award-nominated collection, Wild Hunt for the Stars, published by Sam's Dot and Smashwords.com. 
Terry Lee Relf, or Semi, which is her Haijin, or haiku poet's name, is a life member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association and an active member of the Horror Writers Association. She works as an editor for various publishers and publications, including Sam's Dot Publishing, Hunger Magazine, and the Drabble Contest publication. Her slipstream novel, The Waters of Near, was published by Sam's Dot Publishing in July 2011. Her haikus are interspersed throughout this show. Coming home, the view from the star slips windows. No translation. Semi, a.k.a. Terry Lee Ralph. Portal Array. It's time to return home to Alpha Centauri. Semi. Not just people can return home but also objects, animals, and, of course, aliens have homes to return to also. Mere Decommissioned by Melissa Frederick Sixteen years in orbit, more workhorse than dove, hauling olive branch hopes for two nations— Junkets of queasy cosmonaut ambassadors, armed with test tubes, scraps of shared language, smiles, and vacuums for floating remnants of breath. The old girl has lasted. Her warranty's up. Now Russia retires her to the floor of the ocean of peace. Before fishermen frozen in camcorder salutes, she streaks bright as an unwrapped Roman candle, forsaking her role as celestial sentry for landscapes more alien. Saltwater presses her hull, but not for clues to humanity's fate. She's settled for a bed of biofluorescence, volcanic heat, and the company of spongy leviathans tracking their prey with singular, unblinking eyes. Mere Decommissioned was first published in 2003 in R.E.A.L. regarding arts and letters. Melissa Frederick is a Ph.D. candidate at Temple University, her poetry and prose have appeared in numerous publications and is forthcoming in Mythic Delirium and Starlime. Her poetry chapbook, She, was published by Finishing Line Press in 2008. This year, she was nominated for a Reisling Award in the short poem category. Salvaging the Monitor by Lynn C.A. Gardner Recited by Diane Severson The Thundering Deep it booms around me, hollow, the echo of a hundred years. This is how flesh is made bone, slipping free in the silt like this uniform I no longer need. This is how eyes become pearls, jelly bursting to mingle with the waves, till my vision is as wide as the sea. This is the peace beyond this drifting tunnel, this grave of iron with its single tower, upturned in the deep. Soft mud that fills my mouth. This, what we died for, to lie here guarding her final hour. Time stretches in our fellowship in this drifting. The dead have no need to talk. Our grave speaks for us, iron monument, first of its kind. I cannot desert my comrades after so long. We lie together, commingled bones rocked in our ark, while whale-song arcs, cathedral overhead, deep echo down through time. I hear it first, 
men's voices, the chop of propellers. The world of air still holds surprises. Are these men, wrapped in funereal black, umbilical cords stretched out behind, dark streamers that tug at a shadow rippling overhead? They kick straight toward us, as if to do us homage, last respect. We never had a service, nothing but the ship ablaze and the bells ringing as we sank, swallowed between one heartbeat and the next. Long overdue, our rescuers, slick as seals, kick toward us through the currents. Agitating the creatures of the deep with raucous sawing, they tear free our turret. We've been at peace too long. Salvaging the Monitor first appeared in Cider Press Review, Volume 8, 2007. Catalog librarian by day, Lynn C.A. Gardner has just published her first poetry collection, Dreaming of Days in Astafel, from Sams.Publishing. She has published over 250 poems and short stories. She's a 2004 graduate of the Clarion West Writers Workshop. The scent of sulfur on my tongues. Pod mother's greeting. Semi. A Season with the Geese by Rachel Swirsky. Once, when we were young, we flew to Europe with the geese. Twined neck to neck, we sailed the Seine, chasing ripples and water bugs. Lost ourselves in Madrid when sudden snow veiled us, white on white, nested in crumbling ramparts overlooking Rome, until blossoms cracked the frozen meadows, reviving spring. Our season ended. We flew home, clipped our wings, devoted ourselves to grounded lives. Now I watch my window as geese feather the moon and long for one more flight. A Season with the Geese was originally published in Abyss and Apex, Rachel Swirsky is a Nebula Award-winning short fiction author. Her stories and poetry have been collected in a slim volume, Through the Drowsy Dark, from Aqueduct Press. Her Nebula-nominated story, The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window, was serialized on Starship Sofa not too long ago. We might discover that home is a place completely different from where we grew up or come from. Settler's Song by Joanne Merriam All this time I loved you and never guessed. I didn't know about bread, winter cladophils, water's refusal to freeze, restfulness. I've acquiesced. I didn't know I loved the sound of de-hissing flodders. I didn't know about bread, winter cladophils, water's smooth coolness in the oven summer's throat unbeaten. I didn't know I loved the sound of de-hissing flodders. Didn't know about the spotberry tea, never before drunk unsweetened. Its smooth coolness in the oven summer's throat unbeaten. Pulling prickles out of tambalan and sucking them nectar clean. Didn't know about spotberry tea, never before drunk unsweetened. Sol juleps, fried jamwort, the ubiquity of mycopene. Pulling prickles out of tambalan and sucking them nectar clean the way plumigan flock to the mothorn at suggestions of snow. Sol juleps, fried jamwort, even the ubiquity of mycopene. The new-fallen way the hackawisties glow. The way plumigan flock to the mothorn at suggestions of snow, 
this refusal to freeze, restfulness. I've acquiesced to the new-fallen way the Hakuistes glow. Andromeda, I loved you all along and never guessed. Settler's song first appeared in the July 25, 2005 issue of Strange Horizons. Joanne Merriam is a Nova Scotian living in Nashville. Her poetry has appeared in dozens of journals, as well as in her now-defunct collection, The Glaze from Breaking, Stride Books, 2005. Macrame Williams on Lake Titicaca by David Kopaska Merkel Translated by Ovarian Phillips 1. A Lake Under the Stars It had always been his favorite, diving into its weed-shrouded depths, his most intimate ambition, its shimmering skin, the heart of his desire, its undulant bed, the topography of dreams. Now, here, he remembered the lake he had never visited with wistful fondness as he sank through this one on a voyage into night. Oh, the ringed moons, the fabulous golden meniers with their caps of chatoyant moss, the majestic horned riders in their endless herds, they had sucked him in before he even knew they were calling, and now here he was, one hundred meters deep, in ammonia slush, and no way to get back to anywhere. 2. Trouble in 4-4 four, four time He had always known that ringed moons meant trouble, just like amber traffic lights and his daughter's short skirts, but just like all those other warning signs, he had ignored every signal the gigantic planet had to offer. Out here on the edge of things, people learned to take chances. Perhaps they had already taken one too many back home, and that was why they were here. Maybe they had done something they wouldn't discuss, ever, not even when dead stinking drunk. Something that would get them into trouble even on the frontier. Something that meant they could never go home no longer had anything to go home to except something rotten and useless. 3. Amnesia in perpetuity Some even had an unhealthy desire to cross that final river, and that was why they volunteered to be first every place they could. First onto the surface of the largest known planet that had a surface, first to walk out on a frozen lake that made even fabled Titicaca seem hardly more than a large pond, and maybe some of them were thinking that something you had had for sixteen years, or thirteen, or eleven, could not just be let go, no matter what had been done or said. And maybe they would go places they knew were not safe, not because they were risking it all to slap death in the face, but because they were daring death to take them. And death always, eventually, takes everyone, of course. And so here they are, drifting down into what should be gathering, crushing darkness. But he sees, we no longer dissemble, an emerald radiance emanating from below. And he feels, not that he is sinking, but that he is flying upward, faster and faster, and that he will soon burst forth, like a sperm on a mission, into a new world of hope and discovery. 4. Home at Last he rockets out of the water, falls backwards, splashing like a whale, floating then in his iridescent suit, staring upward at a pale blue sky, sculling, and then, unable to see anything but the sky bowl above, 
sculling some more until his arms burn, and he's trying to remember how big this lake really is. He thinks of the histories of Herodotus, and how fact has replaced truth as the goal of inquiry, and what a shame that is, and he twists his head to see where he is going, and he sees chocolate-brown women lined up on the beach, dressed for summer in bright prints, and bearing long wooden poles that they use to fish wandering spacemen out of the water and have their way with them. He is getting hungry and ready for love. 5. It's a harsh life. Or is it that they fend off unwanted attentions with their polished wooden shafts? After all, it is a hard thing to drown a spaceman, lost far from home, and their menfolk just can't bring themselves to do it. But, you know, we can't have just anybody with a highly reflective helmet and an engorged phallus having his way with our women and fathering little red-haired babies at high altitudes. The End Macrame Williams on Lake Titicaca was first published in Poetry Life and Times, April 2005. Dennis Lane is here to tell us in his poem that home might only exist in our minds. Green Grass by Dennis M. Lane The old hometown looks the same. Lyrics spark in my brain as I swim between the stars. There was no padre, no guard, just a surgeon. Volition excised, strange attraction wiped out, leaving me a meat machine paying a debt to a conglomerate that doesn't care. Time is strange here in the deep dark. Decades pass during the span of a dream, while the consideration of a calculation can feel like eons. According to my internal clock, it is 312 years, 7 months and 2 days since I last received an update. Three centuries since last I heard a voice. If I wasn't crazy then, I probably am now. After all the years, it hardly seems possible that my destination looms large. A reddish sun, a world of brown and purple, and me. As I circle the pebble beneath, esoteric machines wake within my belly, sparks of life flicker once more. I, the midwife to the dreams of empire. A vibration travels down my metal spine and my body bursts like a pomegranate. Ceramic pods, the seeds of a world, rain down upon their new home, leaving a skeleton, a brain, and nothing more. It is at this moment, the climax of my existence, that the depth of my punishment becomes clear. Not trusting me to faithfully carry out their commands over centuries of emptiness, no kill switch was provided. I must circle and watch as poison slowly builds in systems now surplus to requirements. An eye blink, and I notice far below a smudge, a speck, a foothold of earth spreading across a new domain. I look again, and purple is being defeated. A shock of green shocks me. My plaque-clouded memory throws up a song once more, my theme song taunting me 
a metallic taste in my mouth. Strange that I can taste. Why do I say that? Why is everything black? Must sleep. This morning, I woke up. It was still night. I must have been bad because Mummy has tied me to my bed. I can't move, but I'm happy. Through the window, I can see a big green ball. And I remember a song from long ago. One more sleep, just one more, and I'll be walking on the green, green grass of home. Sometimes you returned home before you really had a chance to miss it. Rich Magahiz's poem, There and Back Again, is in the form of a mirror Fibonacci. Syllable count 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, and back again. Do not bother to bring a toothbrush or a book. It'll be over sooner than that. But you'll want a camera and a box of postcards. And when they bring the tray of drinks and make you sit up, make a scene. They made us wait. Satfeed from home. Sorry we missed you during the last window. Semi. Sat cards from space. Only nine more light years until I hold you in my arms. Semi. When we return home from any significant trip, we are always changed. The question is, how much? Cold Comfort by Mari Ness The cold hills held a certain comfort. The rich shadows and blue-green lights, the faces hidden in silver webs, and the music, the music. In seven days, or so you thought, your fingers played five silver harps and two of gold and one carved from a single diamond, its melody sharp enough to slice through a sword, and three lyres, shaped of human bone and seawater foam, one fiddle worked from green roses, pipes carved from fire, bound with butterfly wings, a bauron tightened with selkie skin, a whistle melted from morning dew, all piercing your skin, slipping through your blood, you rested in the shadows of the lights, stumbling home beneath an unchanged moon. So aged, so aged your clothing beneath the hills, so aged, so aged the people above the hills. Their breaths stop when they see your face. You have to smile, plucking at the fairy harp, watching its notes shiver through their skin. You had told them, as they had urged you to work in fields and on woods, in a blacksmith's forge, that music, however wasteful of time, was your way to hold on to endless youth. Mari Ness lives in central Florida, is a self-proclaimed geek, dabbler in marine biology, devourer of books, and movie freak. More of her poetry can be found in various magazines, and she has a story included in the 2010 Shine Anthology. She blogs and tweets actively, and has a column on Tor.com. Too many light years since I've been home, visiting my great-great-granddaughter's cairn. Semi. 
Sometimes when we return, we find our home no longer exists, and we are left only with longing. Afterwards, I attempt to return by Lynn C. A. Gardner. It's the end of the world, but I still try to get there, that one place I felt safe, though I know it was raised to the ground years ago. Beside this little row of pines where Grandma showed me how to pluck sticky cones and birds' eggs that tumbled from their nests onto needle-soft earth. How to place my hands climbing. How not to get stuck by fear. Last time I came home, I sat motionless for hours while the clouds skittered across a blue sky, staring at the dead square of dry grass where home used to be, all planks and splinters, white paint peeling, second-story windows gone dead and dull without us, years before that first disintegrating wave. Even now, at the end, I can't believe it's lost. It must be here somewhere. I'll close my eyes and turn around, reach out my hand, find it small and solid in the needles, hard and here. Home can't last past memory. Yet here I stand, though histories fade like dawns. Afterwards, I Attempt to Return was previously published in the magazine of Speculative Poetry, Volume 8, Number 3, Spring 2008. And in going away, there is always the danger that we won't or can't ever return. Gulliver's Boots by Geoffrey A. Landis To more quickly speed the long-traveling Gulliver's return to his home, the governor of Glubdubdrib gifts the weary traveler with a pair of what he calls exponential boots. Each step, he tells Gulliver, will carry you precisely twice as far as the step before. And thus you will stride back to your homeland in but a few score steps. Gulliver accepts the boots gladly. Be thou careful, the sorcerer king cautions, for... But Gulliver, pleased with his gift, and the prospect for a hasty return to his beloved home, pays no heed. Already he is striding five feet to a pace, ten feet, a score. In a moment he is striding a furlong, a quarter mile, a half mile at a step. He strides, and in a blink he passes Taprobane, Cashmere, France. In an air of judgment he strides once more. Iceland, and turns back. Australia, the northern pole. With each step, the amazed Gulliver finds himself even farther from his goal. Another step takes him beyond the earth, and he sees the globe in its entirety, a glistening sphere of marbled white and blue, hanging unsuspended in the diamond-studded void. But, remarkably, the magical boots take grip on empty air, and so Gulliver turns once more, and blindly steps toward home. Gulliver has long since lost sight of the tiny blue dot, the orb which held his home. He has lost among a million million stars the speck of fire which had been his sun. He thinks he can still tell, among the myriad pinwheels of light, the smudge of light that he had once familiarly called the Milky Way, but he is no longer quite as certain as he had been 
for Gulliver is no mathematician. He doesn't know in exponential boots, no matter how long he strides, once he has passed any place, he can never go back. Originally published in Asimov's March 2001. Jeffrey A. Landis is a scientist with the NASA John Glenn Research Center and a Hugo and Nebula Award-winning science fiction writer. Recently, we heard one of his stories here on Starship Sofa. And let's not forget the reunions when we've arrived. The Eternal Reunion by Michael Trim Harry's lost a lot of weight. He's looking far too thin. Becky's teeth are still her own, as yellow as her skin. Catherine is dressed in black. It goes well with her eyes. Kenneth, still the ladies' man, strokes withered flanks and thighs. Rancid flesh and time-worn bones, the sweet scent of decay. Scabrous moon to light it all, the grave-scarred dead at play. Such a night, the senior class of 1921, shambles proud beneath the stars, another decade gone. Michael Trim has sold over 150 works of short fiction and poetry to publications including Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, and Weird Tales. He lives outside of Austin, Texas. You've heard his poetry on Starship Sofa before. So that'll do it for the poetry on the theme of coming home. In Poetry News... It was pointed out to me by Amal El-Motar that ReaderCon, where the Reisling Awards are announced each year, takes place in Burlington, Massachusetts, not Maryland. Amal wasn't able to attend ReaderCon this year, and sorely missed being there, rooting for her friends. While C.S.E. Cooney was winning the Reisling Award, Amal wrote a pastiche on Claire's poem Dog Star Men, which placed third in the short poem category and which you heard on Poetry Planet number 3. I hope you enjoy this bonus poem. Reader Con Women by Amal El Motar After Dogstar Men by C.S.E. Cooney All the women whom I have loved have gone to Reader Con. Reader Con, that gathering of great minds in summer, that Burlington bog, that green room district, promising purple hats, black kraken rum, a mead-stained sea, my lovely women are gone, leaving their blogs behind them. They have left their blogs, but have taken the sweet of their words, their bright faces and transporting fingers, their laughter from the moist haunts of their throats. They have driven away, forsaking everything, to be happy at ReaderCon. Oh, ReaderCon, your programming's made of fervent ephemera, your rain is tea and is tannic. There is Thai food to eat, little else. Almost everyone has a sturgeon. Like September before them, my women have circumnavigated mystery without me. In other poetry news, for the second time, the Science Fiction Poetry Association will be presenting an online Halloween poetry reading edited by Liz Benefeld. Featured poetry will be read by the poets and can be listened to individually right on the website from October 15th. And if that isn't enough, you can go to the SFPA website to hear the 2010 online Halloween poetry reading.
If you live in Toronto, Canada, consider attending the Offbeat Open Mic for poetry, fiction, and alternate universes at Rebecca's Coffee House on the second and fourth Sundays of every month from 5 to 7 p.m. Also, the Chiaroscuro reading series, featuring only speculative literature writers, both poetry and prose, takes place at the Augusta House in Toronto every second Tuesday of the month at 8 p.m. Two SF poetry panels are occurring at Necronomicon in St. Petersburg, Florida from October 21st through the 23rd. First is an intro to writing poetry, and the second is on connecting science fiction with poetry and song. Panelists are Alyssa Malcon, Johanna Bolton, Michael Fosberg, John Tumlin, and Rick Wilbur. Recent and forthcoming publications in poetry include Twisted in Dream, Anne K. Schrader's collected Weird Poetry, is due out from Hippocampus Press in October. This is more Lovecraftian than SF, but it does include her sonnet sequence in the Yadith Time, which is a very SF homage to Lovecraft's Fungi from Yagath. Bruce Boston's latest poetry collection, Surrealities, is in print and available from Dark Regions Press. Burning Effigy Press presents Maria Alexander's latest poetry collection, At Louche Ends, Poetry for the Decadent, the Damned, and the Absinthe-Minded. The Tin Men, a collection of poetry by Kendall Evans and David Kapaska-Merkel, is now available from Sam's.Publishing. And that'll do it for this installment of Poetry Planet. What a doozy! I hope you'll agree it was a great collection of poetry from so many illustrious SF poets. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. Do take a jaunt over to the Good Ship Starship Sofa's website and follow some of the links to the poet's sites. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. This is me, signing out. Till the next visit to Poetry Planet. That is it. Starship's over. Show 208. Put to bed. One little thing before I go as well. Don't forget the Sofa Notes show. I interviewed Gita Jensen from the oldest comic book and science fiction shop in the world. How cool is that? Opened up in, I think, 1971. Celebrating the 40th birthday of the day. So, or this, this week anyways. So pop over to the Sofa Notes show and get a listen to that. So until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that procedure Shall we set for launch? Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 